From Casa de Esperanza's National Latina Network, I'm Jose Juan Lara Jr., and this is Conversations Over a Cafecito. At Casa de Esperanza's National Latina Network, we understand that visibility and representation matters. March is both International Women's Day and Women's History Month. Increasingly, Latina women are being celebrated for their contributions across the world, and at Casa de Esperanza National Latina Network, we'll be interviewing Latinas from across the U.S. who have left their personal mark in the movement to end gender-based violence. Today, we are joined by Judge Rosa Figarola. Judge Figarola is a graduate from the University of Miami School of Law and currently serves as a circuit court judge assigned to the Unified Family Division in Miami-Dade County, Florida. Previously, Judge Figueroa served in the Dependency, Family, Domestic Violence, and Criminal Divisions in Miami-Dade County and is a former assistant public defender, serving in the office of the public defender from 1982 until her appointment as circuit court judge in 2011. Beyond her judicial duties, Judge Figueroa was an adjunct professor in family law and trial advocacy at St. Thomas School of Law in Miami and serves in several community boards addressing domestic violence. Judge Figueroa has presented on gender bias, trauma-informed courts, and adjudication of domestic violence across the U.S. and internationally at symposiums such as the Caribbean Dialogue on Rule of Law and Gender-Based Violence held in Miami of 2012 and San Juan, Puerto Rico in March 2016. Welcome, Judge Figueroa, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jose Juan. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here, especially on this month of all months. And I do want to make a correction. I'm no longer in the Unified Family Division. I now sit in the Probate Division in Miami. Thank you, Judge. Um, full disclosure, um, I've known Judge Figueroa for about three or four years now. Um, I've, got, I've had the privilege of working with her and doing some of these trainings across the country. And I just have to say, for, for me personally, it's a, it's, it, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you because I think you're an amazing person, but we're going to get into it in a little bit. But before we start, we always like to start off asking our guests how they like to take their cafecito, if it's in the morning, if it's in the evening, in the afternoon, you know, what's going on with that? Actually, it's all day. <laughs> it's not unheard of that sometimes I would be on the bench and all of a sudden I turn around and either a corrections officer or the judicial assistant kind of slips me a little cortadito or, uh, or an espresso, a little shot throughout the day. So I would say throughout the day. I can only imagine, Judge, especially in the job that you have, uh, listening to all those cases every day. And um, again, I, I can only imagine the work that you do. So as we get into this conversation around Women's History Month, and as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, focusing on Latina women across the U.S. who have different roles around ending gender-based violence, in this case, you as a judge, I want to read you a statement around Women's History Month and just want to get your first impressions. According to womenshistorymonth.gov, which is hosted by the Library of Congress states, during this month it's about amplifying women's voices to honor the past, inform the present, and inspire the future. The stories we tell deepen our understanding of women's contributions to the world, showing how far women have advanced and how we value equality and the contributions for all. So in reading that statement, Judge Figueroa, what does that bring to you? What are your reactions to that statement? 
So I, I think it's really important and, and uh, to recognize the contributions of women. I think so many times the role of women, and there's so many examples throughout history of where women made valuable contributions and then weren't recognized. So it's very gratifying to see the, the impetus to recognize women and break down these stereotypes or recognize them for the full, vibrant beings that we are and the contributions that we make. And then taking that to an extra layer around Latina women, you know, what do you think is the importance of recognizing Latina women as part of Women's History Month? Well, Latina women, we, we, we are a fast-growing portion of the population. And I think that oftentimes, like with any marginalized community, our contributions aren't really recognized. We're viewed as a homogeneous group of, depending on the region that you are, we're either all Puerto Rican or Mexican, or if you're down here in South Florida, Cuban, and, and we are painted with a, broad, uh, with a broad stroke. I think it's important as we move forward to recognize the contributions that we make. You know, we're not either just oversex, hot-blooded women in red dresses with curly hair. You know, and, and whether, whether we're or, or submissive, and that whether we are quietly making contributions in a traditional or non-traditional home or running for office or sitting on the Supreme Court, you know, we, we're, we're a rainbow of contributions that we make to this community. And, and I think it's, it's very gratifying to see us, or Latinas, recognized as an independent, vibrant group that is not homogeneous, but we come in very many shapes, sizes, and colors. And taking that all into account, Judge, and putting it back on your perspective, on you as a, as a judge, as a Latina judge, what was that like? coming up in this field, you know, because I, you know, deciding to go to law school, becoming a lawyer, and now serving, presiding as a judge, what was that trajectory for you, taking into account what you just described? What was that experience for you? Well, you know, I, I, um, I came from a pretty traditional family, although my parents were divorced early on. My mom was a lawyer in Cuba. I'm Cuban, and I was born on the island. My grandfather and father had been lawyers. And growing up, I, I really had no interest in the law. I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> I wasn't good in sciences. So I remember coming home and announcing I joined a debate team because I was very, very shy. And I announced to my mom that I, was, that I had decided I was going to become a lawyer because I fell in love with the um, – I had gone to a, a congress, like a student congress, and I really loved the fact that people were deciding principles and how to implement policies that were going to be fair for, for the students and whatnot. And I remember that her reaction was adverse. She did not want me to be a lawyer. And I said, but Mommy, why? I mean, you were a lawyer. You know, our, our family, we, we have all these lawyers. And she said, well, honey, you know, if something happens in the United States, you know, where are you going to go? Your, your tool is, is, your, is your language, and you'll lose it. And I said, well, Mom, come on. I mean, if something happens in the United States and it becomes communist, then where are we going to go? So it was a little bit of an uphill battle where I thought it wouldn't have been. She was not very happy with my choice. And then when I went to law school, I decided to do criminal law. That was not very favorably received either. And I was one of the first Latinas that was in the public defender's office in Miami when I was hired a classmate of mine had started right before me, like months before, and we were the first Latinas that had been hired. It was not a very woman-friendly office at the time. 
you had to really hang with the boys, so to speak. And I remember walking into a cell and having an inmate curse and say he couldn't believe that he had a woman. Back then, I was 23, 24 years old, and I was able to speak to him in a language that he understood and explain to him I was the only thing between him and, and, and the state prison system. So it, it, was, a, it, it was interesting. It was, it was fun. It was challenging. And of course, along the way, you had to kind of always prove yourself in a way that my male colleagues didn't have to prove themselves. And then, although Miami is a very culturally diverse community, we've had our growing pains also. And being a Latina in a community that right now you look at it and, and you know, I, I get political um, advertisements in Spanish here, that wasn't always easy either, you know, whether it was judges saying things that were not, that were not very favorable to Latina, whether it was sometimes Anglo colleagues uh, saying disparaging things to our community when our community was going through turmoil. And it can still be very painful to remember some of the things and, and some of the battle scars, let's say, that I had as a result of it. But time goes on. Along the way, I met a lot of very strong Latinos and Latinas that, that we wanted to make sure that there was equality in the way of the judiciary in Miami, as well as in the practice. And, and we waged our own wars. And, 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 and looking back on it, I have to tell you, I've really enjoyed my career, and I've especially enjoyed being Latina in Miami with all its growing pain. And it's been nice because now my daughter is an attorney, and it's been sometimes nice to tell her and her generation what it was like as a Latina and as a, in the legal community. And sometimes they still face some issues, either because they're Latinas or because they're women. So now... I find myself at times in a much more fighting the same type of issues, but in a, in a different way. So can you tell me what are some of those differences? Because when you said you were the first Latina hired, that to me is amazing. And I'm just wondering, in retrospect, what have been some of those changes you've seen that, I mean, you've alluded to some of those challenges that you still encounter and 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 also perhaps trying to mentor other Latinas who want to follow this trajectory of being a lawyer and perhaps serving as a judge. But can you give us some retrospective of, like, what are some of the things you've seen, like being the first Latina to be hired to do this job as opposed to now? Well, at the time, remember that there was Gemma. She, she, was, she had been a classmate. So at first, like, like I said, it was a very male-oriented practice, the public defender's office. As you can imagine, the, the people that want to do criminal defense work in the public defender's office, it, it's generally a rowdy kind of group. <laughs> and, um, and it used to be a very male-dominated practice back then. This would have been in 1982. I, I had interned there in 1981, in the summer of 1981. And so this would have been in 1982. And also I think that inmates weren't necessarily used to seeing a, a woman in criminal law. And personally, from my mom also, it was like, you know, you're going to hang out with criminals. That's not the kind of practice that she wanted for me. So, for example, I remember I became a single mom when my, when my daughter was eight months old. The judge wanted to stop the calendar in the middle of the, after, of the afternoon and, and wanted to resume the calendar at 5 o'clock. So at 5 o'clock, I already had to pick up my daughter at the daycare. So I remember I marched over to the daycare. I took the baby, 
I had an extra bottle, and I said, okay, I'll do the calendar with the baby on my hip. So I remember I was sitting in the aisle to start the calendar, and my, um, my colleague walks in, and he looks at the baby in the carrier that's on the floor. You know, now I would never think of putting the baby on the carrier on the floor. But he looks at her, and he looks at me, and he goes, Rosa, what are you doing? And I said, oh, my God, this judge, she, this judge wanted to start the calendar, like, after hours. So I'm going to do the calendar with the baby on my hip. And I remember he said, go home. That has been a marked difference because now sitting as a judge, I get asked by not only women but men about child care issues. So that's, that's been a favorable, a favorable change, the recognition that people aren't just machines and that family obligations are important and that the law and a jury trial sometimes might have to bend because women are doing all these different roles. Or, or, and now, like I said, even men will ask me, judge, I'm the one who picks up the baby you know, or, or my children after hours, so we have to make arrangements when we're going to um, schedule a trial and whatnot. That has been wonderful. The bad thing sometimes, like you'll still hear men say things about women that are concerning, or you'll still see an, an older male lawyer refer to a young lawyer by the first name, and all the men are being addressed in their, in their last names. You'll still hear about sometimes, unfortunately, men in power, colleagues, saying statements about young women that I personally find inappropriate. The difference is now that whereas before maybe I wouldn't have said anything because I was one of the young lawyers, now I'm in a position of power and I can say, you know, what, what, what and I can call the person on that. And, um, but, you know, even at this stage, with all these years under my belt, I would say about three years ago, I was actually discussing an issue with a colleague who was a male, and I was upset about how things were being addressed. And the colleague who I'd known for many years, and, and, and it's somebody that I cared about, but I remember they, they were saying, baby, 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 I've got it under control. Um, hmm. Exactly. But hmm. because I have my battle scars and because I am in a position of power and because there are other women in a position of power, I called this person on it and I said, I am not your baby. Don't you ever address me in this way. There were several months after that that I didn't even get a hello in the hallway. But frankly, I didn't care. And I was not concerned that that was going to have any ramifications in my employment. I didn't make a bigger deal out of it because I felt that I was strong enough that I could sit up or stand up for myself. And the same applies for young women now. You know, I'm constantly telling them, if this happens, you know, you, know, you, you tell me. Thankfully, I've never had to address it for anyone. But I think sometimes that had I been the young lawyer, had I had a strong female mentor that I could have said, can you believe they said this and this to me, which did happen, I would have felt much more empowered in being able to stand up for myself and, um, and getting the treatment and the recognition that sometimes was not granted. And I think because the evaluations were skewed in a certain way, especially because I was in a, such a male-oriented field of the law back then, which doesn't That's exist it. now. I mean, there's many women. Our chief judge down here in Miami is, is a woman, a Latina, actually. And I think the bench has a number of women, and a number of them are Latinas. We are very well represented on the bench. And largely, I have to say, because of a lot of the work that we did um, that the Cuban Bar Association and some of the other bar associations did, I guess, about 20 years ago. You said a lot of things, Judge Figueroa, which 
when you hear that story about your colleague calling you baby bay, it's like, oops, that was a mistake. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay, I would never, but I guess whatever. But looking back, you know, just a little bit more retrospection and then perhaps coming to the present, we know that, and you and I know that cultural identity does impact life and how sometimes in our own personal lives, how we identify with certain communities does impact how we live our lives, how we're limited by that, or how we are able to access certain things. And then taking that into perspective and you being uh, a Latina, a judge, but not just a judge, but a Latina, what has that part of your identity as a Latina informed how you carry the proceedings of your court? Because you mentioned a couple of things like, you know, through the years, you now you see even people that are coming before you, you know, men and women asking about child care arrangements and the challenges around that. But how has your cultural identity perhaps impacted how you, how you do your work as a judge or, or, or it hasn't? No, I, I sure it has, and, and I, I think it impacts all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, Jose Juan. I think because of the work that we've done, and a lot of it with you, you become much more aware of it. I devoted most of my career towards working with troubled families, so I had to be very aware of it also, right, because you're making decisions on such intimate factors in the makeup of a family. And sometimes you're asked to make decisions that, you know, I have a very large family, so I know that what works in my nuclear group would not work for my cousins and vice versa. So, so, so that was always like a factor for me to, to think about. But I think that the fact that I always felt being a Latina was such an important factor, and, I'm, and I always tell people I like being Cuban. You know, I, I, and I enjoy, I relish seeing other people enjoy who they are too. So I enjoy my Cubanism, you know, the loudness, whatever. Whatever it is that you want to say about Cubans, I, I like it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when I would look at families, and I, I think it always impacted me. Sometimes when they were of a similar ethnic group than mine, I could, I, I think it gave me an understanding that others may not have had. If they weren't, if they were Latinos, but they weren't necessarily Cubans, because Miami now has, you know, we, we have all representations here. It still gives you an insight. Many, we have a large immigrant community. So struggles can have different hues, but it's still prevalent issues. And I, and I always thought, you know, and then, and then even if you weren't, even if it was a, a community, we, we have a lot of um, Eastern Europeans here, we have an African American community, we have a lot of Islanders. I think it, it gave me a sense of humility because having been Latina and as I came up, Latinos still didn't have the, as much of infrastructure of power as now you could argue we have here in Miami. It always felt a little bit like you still had to prove yourself and you were the underdog. And that there, the establishment was all too eager to try to put us down because they were, there were certain concerns, perhaps, of how, of, of how the political shift might affect the establishment. And a lot of the work that I was involved in before I became a judge was, was around issues like that. So I, I think it definitely affected me because then when I'd see people that maybe weren't the norm, I think it gave me, or I hope it gave me, a greater understanding and, and a greater inclination to kind of think outside the box. And if I didn't understand them, 
to say, I just don't understand what the issue is here. Like, why, why don't you want to see your kid? Or, 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 or why is this happening? Why is this important to you? And ultimately, I think that that's really important for judges, you know, because we, we come into people's lives to solve problems. And if you don't have a certain amount of humility and kind of ability to step back and say, like, what's really, what's the bottom line here? What's the issue here? I think you can make a lot of mistakes and, and, um, and really hurt people and hurt our system that's based upon the perception of fairness. I, 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 think it, I think it's impacted me quite a bit. And certainly being in a position of power, like you said, as a judge, you do impact a lot of lives on the regular, right? Making decisions around custody of children, which impacts the formation of family. And, and I think you also mentioned seeing other people in your courtroom who may be part of the Latino communities and, you know, seeing some reflection in those conversations and, and understanding how family is it's not, it's a very large extent at the core of Latino communities. I think that says a lot about who you are. I don't think it even, I don't, I think it says a lot about who you are and how you approach the issue of judicial fairness in your courtroom. And having been able to see you present to other judges or other judicial officers and their staff, I mean, that comes through uh, having seen you engage with your peers and, and trying to engage in these more significant conversations, which, again, it's influenced whether we acknowledge it or not or aware of it or not, how, how we identify influences in many infinite ways of who we are how we approach the work, in this case, how we approach the issue around ending gender-based violence in the context of family, intimate relationships, or even within communities. And I think as a, particularly, and I don't want to exceptionalize you for whatever reason, but I think being a Latina who is a judge who also is a woman, you know, there's these three layers or these intersectional layers around who you are and how that comes and, and, and speaks through the work that you do. And certainly, I mean, you gone around the world and in the U.S. and turning around these issues. And so in taking that context, you know, because we are formed by so many different factors in our lives, I just wanted to ask you who in your life has influenced you as, let's take the first one piece of your identity as a judge. Who has influenced you in the work that you do as a judge who happens to be a Latina doing this work? Um, you know, like so many people, I'd have to say my mom. My my mother my mother um, was was a lawyer. Uh, unfortunately, she didn't get to practice very uh, very long before everything happened in Cuba, and, and she left. But but she I to me she was my hero. And it's funny because whenever I've one of the first things I did when I became a judge was I took her a copy because she was never able to get the original of her law degree. But I have a copy of her law degree. I have a copy of her grandfather's law degree. Or I have her, her grandfather's law degree. And a certificate when she, uh, of a notaria, which is what she was. She was a notario in Cuba. And I put that up on my wall. And I have a picture of the day she graduated from law school. And she's the one that influenced me the, the most. She had a, uh, although she considered herself, and, she, and in many ways she was a very conservative person, she mm -hmm. thought I was too liberal for my own good, or I don't know if liberal, but, you know, just progressive. And what she thought was liberal wasn't really very liberal at all. But she had a very traditional view of women in many ways. 
But if you spoke to her, she, um, she had an, an, a sense of fairness and a respect for the law and for, and for just justice and human, the essence of what a human being should be that I carry with that with me all the time. So I think that she was the one that would be the greatest influence for me, although she never wanted me to be a lawyer. She wanted me to be a doctor, but it was her. Wow. her. And I think uh, every time we ask this question to all our guests, um, and the majority of our guests identify as Latina women, they always hit their moms. And at the core, it seems like in maybe a stereotype or not, but I think for Latino families, mom is the heart and soul of most families, especially in Latino communities. And of course, I say that with some things I'm gen perhaps generalizing a lot, but it seems like every time we ask this question, a lot of Latinas who we interviewed have said, it's my mom. She's the one who set this pattern before me. She's the one who said, expect more and be more because you can. Right. Right. And I think that's great. And I think for a lot, of, I think a lot of times, um, whether we want to or not, when we identify as part of a, of a community, not a center, when any one of us are, or any one of us is uh, successful, we become exceptionalized. And so I definitely want to say that, you know, you are an exceptional person, but I think uh -huh. you're not exceptional because you're Latina or you're a woman. It's because of who you are and, and the values that you bring to the work that you do as a judge addressing forms of family violence, whether it's in the context of, you know, keeping the best interest of the child or, or what have you. So I think that's important to be said. And and in a lot of those conversations, along that those lines, what is it that you you've been doing this for a very long time, Judge. Um, and what is it that what is it that you want your legacy to be? Your legado as they say in Spanish. What is it the legacy you want it to be, you know, from everything that you've done in your life, especially as a as a judge, that's a hard question. I, you know, Jose Juan, when I started doing this work, you know, I mean, at, at one point, um, I was raised by a single mom. You know, there there's a lot of issues, like like many families, right? There, we had a lot of issues, and I tended to see things a lot as black and white. And I remember at one point somebody told me when I was much younger, um, there's a lot of shades of gray. And when I first started doing, like, working with troubled families and families afflicted by violence, it was very easy to, to make quick judgments, right? And what I found as, as I delved deeper in this work was, you know, sometimes a little boy that's getting hit and that watches mom get hit becomes the batter. Sometimes the mom that says something that you want to feel horrified in court was a little girl that got raped or hurt some other way when she was a little girl. And what I've tried to do working with families, and even now when I work with elder abuse and issues like that, is you can see the truth of what's happening. You can see that a family is being hurt by the violence, that children are being attended, whatever, whatever the, the maltreatment is that's affecting the family. And that sometimes even if you have to look at the harshness of the truth, and you have to adjudicate the harshness of the truth, the truth also requires that there be an element of compassion. So that even if, if you see, and, and you know, in this field, and I'm sure anybody that has worked in this field has, has seen things that either make your blood boil, and, you know, and I'd want to jump over the bench and just kill somebody, or can't, you can't sleep at night. 
But I hope that along the way, even when I was saying things, and people used to tell me, you know, Judge, you can be a little bit scary. Like they'd come in and I'd be laying down the law as to what, you know, what the visitations were going to be or something like that. And sometimes I'd say things that I'd go, boy, that's pretty harsh. And it was hard to say those things. But I always tried to say, you know, I'm doing this because I, I want you to win. I, I want you to get your kids back. I want you to, you know, I want you to overcome the addiction. I, I want the violence to stop. So that sometimes the truth has to be adjudicated with the harshness of the truth, but with compassion and love. And I, and I hope I left that when I transitioned out of that um, division, and I still do work there or would like to, is I hope I left that, that I was fair and I could see all the shades of gray and I may have called things out, but that I did it with love and respect because everyone deserves that. You know, even people doing horrible things, it's still such a waste of humanity at times if you look at it that way, you know. So that, that, that's what it is. I, I hope I achieved it, you know. I don't, I don't know, but I hope so. And it's something that I strive for, even in the work I do now with the elderly. And that's a whole host of issues there, too. And in talking about what you hope to have left behind and hopefully cultivated at the same time, what are some words of inspiration or aspiration you would share with maybe other Latinas or Latinos that are out there, perhaps that young Latina who is in junior high or high school and wants to be a lawyer or wants to be a judge or wants to be something in the legal system, even Latino, even Latino boys, what would you tell them? You know, because there's always a lot of fear, and, and you know as well as I do that for some of our communities, there's always this, you're not good enough. What would you tell those young women or young men that are out there that are thinking, I would like to be a judge, and why can't I be a judge? You know, it makes me upset to think that any young kid would think that they weren't enough. But I, I would actually say basta, basta. Like, you, you, can't, you can't think that way. I remember once I was I was um, I was a judge and there was a young woman who had a very thick Cuban accent, and um, she was a judicial assistant for one of the judges and she dreamed of going to law school and she used to tell me, oh judge, you know, with her with her accent, but I can't because how am I going to get up in court? And I'd go, Basta, you're going to get up in court and you're going to talk, and if somebody can't understand what you're saying, you're going to you're you're going to tell them that you know more than they do. So I would tell them, you know, you stand tall. And you look people in the eye, and you believe in yourself. And and if anybody says no, you you I could say something else, but but I would just say basta, basta about thinking in ways that limit you. There are no limits. And and Latinos, you know, I know that it may sound a little corny, but we're we're beautiful people. You know, there are no limits. The only limits are the limits that we put on ourselves. And there were so many times that people either, I remember one day, for, for example, my mom, we were in the grocery store, and, and she said tissue, and she said it with a heavy accent, and the cashier made fun of her in front of me. <laughs> that did not go well, because um, I, I remember thinking, who does she think she is making fun of my mother because she has an accent? You know, when this woman was raising my brother and I on her own and, and had overcome incredible obstacles to get where she was. And that's what I would tell these kids. You know, we, we, we are a country of immigrants. Our, our strength is in our diversity. 
Our strength is in every kid and every person that had a dream and that thought that it couldn't be done, has it, and they achieved it. That's where our strength is. And that's what I would tell any kid. You know, we, we live in a country where any dream can come true, and you're only limited by yourself. And there are no limits. There are no limits. We can become anything we want. And the last question, Judge, and in your trajectory of doing this work as a judge, what are some lessons you have learned for yourself to apply in your life and in, in how you conduct yourself as a person, as a judge, or as Judge Figueroa, or as a private person, as Rosa? And this will be one of the few times I call you that, Rosa Figueroa, in your family. No, I would what tell are you some? You can. <laughs> I know. What what is what are some of those life lessons you have learned in your own life trajectory? So that that um, you've got to be willing to go with the flow. You know, so when, when I started and when I was younger, I thought life was going to be a certain way. And life gave me a lot of curveballs. And sometimes things that I thought were, um, were not good turned out to be what I needed at the time. And they may have been hard and they may have been difficult, but they made me who I am today. And they made me understand people's struggles, which I think has been an important thing when I'm on the bench, especially in the area of dependency and family and all of that. And so I, I think that as the years grew, and I think a lot of people feel this way, right? I mean, life throws you curveballs, and you either learn how to play ball or, 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 you, or you become miserable. <laughs> and I don't, you know, and, and I never wanted that. So I... I I think that life just kind of, you know, my mother had a, had a phrase that she'd go, can I say, 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 it, say it in Spanish? Yes. She'd go, um, ay, mija, más pedimos en Cuba. And as life has gone by, that phrase really carries me. Like whenever things are tough, I go, ay, más pedimos en Cuba. Like saying, you know what, it's okay. As long as, um, as, long as there's love and there's, and, and there's health and you've got your family, you kind of roll with the punches. You start new, and maybe it's better. I don't know if that directly answers your question, but it, it does. It does, and I think, um, yeah. And I, I mean, life as it is is hard, and I think sometimes we are our own worst critics. Yeah. And and again, you know, as members who may be identifying with communities not a center, that messaging is like we're not good enough, and and like you said previously, it's like, but we are. And we come from communities that, that have contributed so much to the culture in general. And then just bringing it back home to our own communities, what we have contributed, medicine, right. um, engineering, science, all of these things that we do, even judici- judicial uh, systems, we've all contributed in many different and wonderful ways. So I think that's important to always recognize that we are who we are. We can only do the best and hope for the and hope that the best that we do is good enough. That's right. Well, just Figueroa, we have come to our time on this interview. Uh, again, thank you so very much for taking the time to sit down with us and have this virtual conversation over a cafecito. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you for who you are. And in these last three years, I've gotten to meet you and work with you. I am really um, honored to know you. 
And Kanji is one of those people that I, I personally look up to. And just by how you talk and how you do the work, I know that you are an amazing judge. Um, so that's not bias. That's just the truth for me. I will so. say, well, thank you very much. You've embarrassed me completely. Y un, un fuerte, fuerte abrazo. Igualmente. It was a pleasure having you here with us today, Dr. Gorola. It has been, this has been another episode of Conversations Over Cabecito, brought to you by the National Latina Network for Healthy Families and Communities, a project of Casa de Esperanza that builds bridges and connections among research, practice, and policy to advance effective responses to eliminate domestic violence and promote healthy relationships within Latino families and communities. For more information, visit us at nationallatinanetwork.org. This program was produced by the staff at Casa Esperanza National Latina Network, and the music composed by Joey Horton. I'm Jose Juan Lada, Jr. Thank you for listening. Hasta la próxima.